Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, a close friendship can be one of the most fulfilling and most challenging relationships of our lives. In their book, Big Friendship, How We Keep Each Other Close, writers and longtime friends Amina Tussauds and Anne Friedman share what it really takes to maintain their meaningful bond, including how race plays out in their relationship and how going to therapy together helped save their friendship. And we want to hear from you. What have you learned from your big friendship or even one that didn't make it? Join us after this news. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. I don't know too many people who'd go to therapy to revive a fading friendship, but that's what friends Amina Tussauds and Anne Friedman did. And the rarity of that step is part of the problem, they say. A close and honest friendship that transcends life phases or emotional shifts requires work. And yet when there's tension or misunderstanding, it can be really hard to do the work to address it. In their book, Big Friendship, So and Friedman share what it takes to keep each other close, as well as how their different races affect their bond, so is black, Friedman is white, and why friendship is one of the most fulfilling relationships of our lives. So and Friedman also co-hosts the podcast, Call Your Girlfriend. Aminatu So, welcome to Forum. Thank you so much for having us. And Anne Friedman, welcome as well. Great to be here. Well, there are so many things that can affect a friendship or create upheavals in friendship. I'm thinking about when one becomes a parent and the other doesn't, or when one gets into a serious relationship with someone and the other doesn't. I mean, what are some of these things that happen in friendships that can really test them? Oh, I mean, that is such a good question. You know, I think that we were both really raised to believe that friendship is a easy, breezy kind of um, <laughs> of bond and that all other forms of intimate relationships can be tested. We have shorthand for this. You know, we grew apart. Or when you say my marriage is hard work, everyone instinctively knows what that means, but they don't believe that it means that, you know, your marriage is bad. They just, we just know that it requires work. And so in friendship, um, there is also a kind of work that is required, but you know, you were right when people get, um, when people get new partners, um, a friendship can be tested when people have children, when people move away, when people get sick, everything that can test, um, you know, a romantic relationship or a parent and child relationship are the same kind of conflicts that arise in um, friendship. 
and they are important to deal with in real time. And that's so true, Aminatou So. And Anne Friedman, I'm wondering if you think this sort of sense of friendship, that it is supposed to be easy breezy, plays into why people don't make the kinds of investments that they need to. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that, um, you know, this notion that you are just supposed to have your friendships in order somehow magically, like they just work, um, is something that a lot of us have internalized as a as a message. And, and it really kind of goes to this um, notion of the way we talk about friendship as like a something that's nice to have, but maybe not essential for a life well lived. Mm. Um, wherein, you know, other things people might say, um, you know, family, like there is, there's no way of being in this world without family. And so obviously you are going to work on those relationships. I think, um, you know, friends don't enjoy that same assumption that they are absolutely essential to a life well lived. And um, if we're really going to value them, I think we also have to acknowledge that um, it's going to take work. And so, Abhinatu, so is that why I say when there's something that we may perceive initially as subtle, like a, a small slight or or a misunderstanding that we might just sort of talk ourselves out of addressing it? Yeah, I mean, I think that we definitely talk ourselves out of addressing it because of the, you know, this implication that friendship is easy and it shouldn't be hard. But I think that the, the deeper truth there is that we all know that it is just riskier to bring that up in a friendship. You know, if you do it within the context of another relationship, you don't necessarily believe that that person is going to never speak to you again or that it'll be the, the conversation that undoes the whole thing. But there is inherently a risk to being um, very emotionally available and also bringing up conflict so quickly and easily in a friendship. Yeah, it makes me think that the element of choice that you get to choose your friends and that uh, it isn't necessarily the same as, say, taking vows um, in a marriage or with family members, that 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 almost plays into that fear that you're talking about, that the relationship could end just as quickly as maybe it developed. I mean, not do so. Absolutely. I know that I have certainly felt that way in my relationship with Anne and in a lot of my other friendships. You know, I think that um, you are correct. We just don't have um, society, like strong societal tethers um, that elevate friendship as an institution that is worth caring about. And I just wonder what the world would look like if we actually said those things out loud to each other, because it's true that Anne and I have not made vows to each other, but it is also true that we are, um, you know, we are deeply embedded in each other's lives in a way that it's just undeniable. We share a bank account, we share, uh, you know, like we share a business together, we share a community together, we share um, a set of values, we are deeply invested in being each other's friend. And is that invalidated because it's not sanctioned by the state or by a ceremony? I, you know, I don't think that we are the only people who are asking these questions. Yeah. And Friedman, I mean, so is that what makes a big friendship? I mean, I don't know that a lot of people would share a bank account or a business the way that you two have. And I'm sure that that's a big part of the foundation of your relationship to some extent. But how do you define big friendship? Uh, every friendship and, and truly every big friendship is is different. And that is one of the things that is incredible about friendship. It can it's a really adaptable kind of relationship to to the two individuals who are in it. Um, you know, I think as we thought about trying to define it, we we really thought about this sense of um, 
emotional connection and, and usually over the long term, you know, not a brand new yesterday kind of friendship, but something where you've really put in the time and gotten vulnerable and, um, you know, borne witness to each other's lives, really. Um, that's one part of it. I think that um, the other part of it is like having withstood some big changes. You know, when I think about my big friendships, you're right, not all of them share paperwork the way that I do with Aminatu, but, you know, I have other friends that have um, known me since I was a teenager. Uh, and, and the fact that they have kind of witnessed me and been walked with me through all these phases of life is one thing that I think really makes our friendship big and robust. Um, and other times it's, it's, you know, placed on the, the definition is more rooted in something like shared community or, um, I don't know, there's a real wide variety of um, ways of defining it. And I think really just that connection and depth is really where we kept coming back. So can you talk a little bit, uh, Aminatu, so about how the two of you met? Oh, uh, we met uh, 11 years ago in Washington, D.C. We were honestly like set up by a friend. We had a mutual friend who just said to us, you have to know each other. And so she invited both of us to her house on purpose to, um, you know, to meet each other. And the background was this, uh, this teen soap opera that we both really enjoyed. And, you know, I, we, we talk a lot about, you know, the fact that because we were in the same social scene, it's possible that we would have met a different way. But the fact that someone very intentionally wanted us to meet also meant that we had permission to pursue a deeper kind of relationship. And, and then it sounds like it was the stages in your life, Anne Friedman, that really also led to this bond becoming such an essential part of both of your lives. That's true. You know, when we really examined it, um, we came to realize that we had met at this point where neither of us was feeling particularly rooted or particularly embedded in our community in Washington, D.C. There was this sense that the people we were close to could leave at any moment. <laughs> and, um, and so that was a part of our story of like really looking for a person to feel rooted to, even though I don't think either of us would have articulated it that way at the time. Um, and then in general, in our lives, you know, this part of our 20s was um, really, really important for each of us in different ways as we were establishing ourselves as adults, you know, thinking about our careers, um, how we wanted to live our lives, where we wanted to live our lives. Mm -hmm. um, we really met at a time that we were starting to have a little bit more agency. You know, we had kind of achieved some escape velocity from our childhood, maybe from our college years. <laughs> escape but velocity, I like that. Yeah, but we hadn't really charted that course for what was next. And, and um, you know, when we look at our own, you know, back to this definition of, of big friendship itself, when we look at our own reasons for um, becoming so emotionally connected to each other, it was clear to us that that was a part of it, this, this stage of identity at which we met. Yeah, and you, you had keys to each other's homes and you would show up on each other's doorsteps and just have time together whenever you needed it. And it's pretty amazing that even with all of that and with that closeness and just that natural connection, that it could get chipped away over time. Um, and, and how if you don't invest in each other and make that decision to do that over and over again, that even the strongest or biggest of friendships can start to deteriorate. And I mean, not too. So um, can you talk a little bit about 
sort of the crises that that began to really affect or I guess they didn't be, they weren't crises then but but the little things that began to affect the relationship and became bigger things when they weren't resolved or addressed no oh, how much time do you have <laughs> <laughs> you know I I think uh, even hearing you say that I feel a pang of um just like regret and also um just like pain for the people that we were but I I understand it a little better you know I think that in any intimate relationship um you also just have to give each other room to grow even if you are deeply invested in each other um it is just inevitable that you are also changing as you are getting older and as the relationship is deepening and so I think that for us um a couple of things happen one we we definitely had some very low level um you know miscommunication or awkward um just like awkward encounters in our in our friendship and instead of addressing them in real time instead of saying like hey that didn't feel great for me did that feel great for you or this is weird i didn't think you would react that way we just said nothing and enough of those accumulated over the years that we were essentially not without even ever saying it to each other or even saying it to ourselves we just didn't feel safe in the friendship anymore because there were so many topics that felt off limit and things that we couldn't talk about. So that was one problem, but I think that the other problem is is the the first thing that I was saying, we were also just changing as people. We met in our mid 20s. We are now in our mid 30s. I hope we know each other forever and I imagine that every decade of life we, you know, we will be new kinds of people and you have to make room for that in a relationship as well. We're talking with Ami Natuso, writer and cultural commentator and Anne Friedman, journalist and essayist. They co-host the podcast Call Your Girlfriend, and they're authors of the book Big Friendship, How We Keep Each Other Close. And I want to invite our listeners to join the conversation. What's a big friendship in your life that transcended life phases or emotional shifts or even one that didn't weather the storm? Or do you have questions for our guests about navigating a friendship in your life? Give us a call with your questions at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at KQED. Dot org. This listener writes, it's funny, so many of the tenets of making friendships work parallel with relationships, and yet we choose friends and partners so differently. Do you feel like there is a lot of difference in that choice aspect of it, Anne Friedman, or, or how the criteria we set when we're choosing our friends versus uh, partners? That's so interesting. I mean, I think that... Um, you know, my criteria sometimes even varies friend to friend, like what what draws me to someone and why I want them to be part of my life is really quite variable. Um, and, you know, I would say that all the people I love have certain things in common. But, um, you know, the idea that friendship is a non-exclusive relationship in the way that many romantic partnerships are really allows for you to kind of say, huh, you know, I would not want to... Um, like move in with this person, or I would not want to uh, start a family with them. But I really love the way that like, we are sounding boards for each other's creative ideas, and also um, travel companions or whatever, you know, you can kind of pick and choose from the menu of all these things that people can bring into our lives and, um, and have friendships that are founded on different shared hobbies and principles and, um, you know, 
uh, ways of support. And I, I think that is just so magical. When I think about the way I want to live for the long term, I'm like, yeah, of course, like one or two people are not going to be everything to me. But I really get this great feeling of expansiveness when I think about the variety of things that different friends can bring to my life. Yeah. And one of the things that I was struck by, Aminatou so was when uh, you were you were both describing in your book, which you write as a shared book, which I think is so interesting um, that you, you write it together in one narrative, but then use each other's names when you're sort of diverging or speaking separately about each other. But uh, you talk about how early on in the relationship, it was all about celebrating your similarities, all the things that you had in common. And I'm wondering if you could talk about when race and your different races started to play more of a role, when your differences started to play more of a role in the relationship. And in particular, I was struck by the chapter where you talk about, um, where you talk about this party that Anne had that you went to that was basically completely white when you arrived. Do you mind talking about that and how that shifted some things in your relationship? Yeah, I mean, it sounds almost silly to say it, like we are different people, but I, um, I did not know that for a long time, you know, <laughs> and I think, and, and I think that it's because, you know, in, in an ideal world, everyone wants to meet someone else on their own terms, like not weighed down by your identity or weighed down by, you know, your family background or just so, so many details external details about who you are everybody wants to believe that they are just in one individual meeting another individual and those are the things that you you share and, and in friendship that is a very powerful kind of mythology and Anne and I are people who are very values oriented so um you know it was very natural that we would become that we would become the kind of friends that we did um, you know, and the, the story that you allude to is that after years of um, us living in different cities, I was visiting Los Angeles and was hosting a party at her house that was not a party for her. It was a birthday party for someone else. And because we had not lived in the same city for a long time, this was a, like, it was, it was one of the ways that I was getting a glimpse into her, what her everyday life might look like. And at this party with, um, you know, with a normal birthday party amount of people, so dozens of them, um, there were, I, I was the only Black person there. And it was very disorienting for me because um, I, you know, on one hand, I don't see Anne every day. So I, you know, I am making a value judgment on, you know, this is how her life is organized now. But also it was disorienting because this, you know, like we in our friendship are very adept at talking about race as it happens in the world. So we talk about racist incidents that have happened, you know, to me or racist incidents that Anne has witnessed in the world or whenever it's happening in the news. But this was one instance that we were challenged to talk about it as it was happening in our own friendship. And when the pain was caused by one of us and not by, you know, something in the news. And that was definitely a conversation that even though we had been friends for a long time, we had neither of us had ever had and it was definitely a point of stretching us so you know on one hand like race is obviously a very glaring uh, kind of it's a very glaring kind of difference when you put it on paper but i think the truth is that like people are attracted to who they are in you know in friendship and in all kinds of relationship and then whatever is happening in the world um you know your relationship is not immune to and that was something that we had been very naive about so you know um 
Anne is not someone that I, you know, I didn't consider that it was some sort of a, you know, aberration that I had befriended this, this facetious person all along. But because we live largely in a world that is ruled by white supremacy, of course, that was also going to manifest in our relationship. And then we had to deal with it. And we didn't talk about it for a long time. And so, Anne, what was your reaction when I mean, not to raise the fact and she was disappointed that she had to right? that the fact that you had this party that you invited her to that was all white, dozens of people. She's the only black person there. Yeah, I mean, in all honesty, as um, we write in the book, my reaction at the my initial knee jerk reaction was defensiveness. Um, this idea of wanting to say, oh, but I didn't make the guest list. I just provided the venue or, um, oh, I just thought you went home early because you were tired from traveling. I didn't think that maybe this was hurt hurtful to you um, was really where I went immediately. Even though, um, you know, as Aminati says, we have talked about these issues as they play out in the wider world all the time. Um, it's still very telling that like my initial reaction was was defensiveness. And I think it's also very telling that um, we, the reason we were having the conversation at all is because Aminatu raised it. And, you know, again, what, what she was saying about how we all want our relationships to be specific and really rooted in, hey, it's just us as people, like we're not affected by these bigger things. The fact is, um, you know, race and racism are such a huge and pervasive thing that there is no world in which our friendship is untouched by it. And um, really, it's a lot easier for uh, interracial friendships that involve a white person, um, the white person to kind of be the one who says, oh, it's fine. We're, we're both kind of the same within this friendship. Meanwhile, um, you know, the friend who is not white is experiencing um, really hurtful and um, alienating things within the friendship. And so we write also about how some of those dynamics are exacerbated when um, it is continually, like in our case, like the friend who is Black, who is bringing up the fact that this is affecting the friendship. Well, this is to writes, many of my Black female friends tell me they just cannot say things to their white friends, or even me at times, I'm Asian American, because we can't ever fully get it. Um, I mean, not too. so could you describe what you talked about with Wesley Morris about the trap door and how that applies to interracial friendships. Oh, Wesley Morris is such a um, amazing cultural critic and really just a, a wonderfully smart and, and kind person. Mm -hmm. But Wesley um, describes this, this image of the trap door of racism really to illustrate that there is a limitation to to a relationship that in, you know, in our case, like a black person can have with a white person in the sense where everyone is just being themselves and you're minding your business and the friendship is trudging along and, and, and an incident arises that is either, um, you know, like either your friend says something, but more likely your friend is reacting to you reacting to something that someone else has said. And, and it involves race and the white friend never reacts the way that you would like them to. And so this door opens. And the, I, I still remember the first time I, I read him like write this because it was so visceral for me. And Wesley tells us um, that, you know, it's, it's never like this huge event. It truly is just like a mustard dropping on white pants and you have to decide, hmm, do I point this out that there's a tiny bit of mustard here? Or do I let it slide? Yeah. And I think that for, you know, I think that for Black people who are friends with non-Black people, but especially in friendships with white people, that moment always comes 
it always, always, always comes. And the black friend is always the one who points out that it is, you know, that there is mustard on the pants. And that is part of the issue. Yes, true. We're talking with Amina Tussaud and Anne Friedman, co-hosts of the Call Your Girlfriend podcast and authors of the book Big Friendship. We're talking about how big friendships affect and permeate and can be such fulfilling parts of our lives and hearing from you, our listeners, about your big friendships. Again, if you have questions or comments, the number 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. And we'll get to those calls after the break. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. I'm Mina Kim. Stay with us. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking friendships this hour with Amina Tussaud, writer and cultural commentator, and Anne Friedman, journalist and essayist. They're co-hosts of the Call Your Girlfriend podcast and authors of the book, Big Friendship, How We Keep Each Other Close. And you, our listeners, are with us. And Amina Tussaud, I just wanted to have you finish your thought about sort of the, the drop of mustard on the pants, which is that moment when race comes in or maybe they, they said or did or witnessed something related to race that may have disappointed you. And how how do you work through that? I mean, I'm guessing that you would say that the best thing to do is to mention the drop of mustard. Right. I mean, I think that there is just an idea um, held among mostly white people that talking about race has to be hard and awkward and shameful and painful. And, um, you know, I I would say that as a Black woman, that is just not true. Like, I have to talk about race all the time because I'm not allowed not to. And so it is a kind of, I think, like, dexterity that everyone should have. So so that when, you know, like, in, in a moment where something as small as a drop of mustard happens... If you can work through that, then, you know, next time a white supremacist rally rolls through town, probably you can also talk about that. And it will not ring false to your friend that you actually care. And and Freeman, do you have any advice for how to handle these kinds of situations, too, especially based on your own experience? Yeah, I mean, I do think that um, for white people who are not raised to really um, be attuned to this as it plays out in their daily lives. I mean, I think Aminatu's point about um, white people thinking that every conversation about race has to be like a huge reckoning to use the parlance of our times um, is is something that, um, you know, you can you really can get better at working through and just raising it. And I think like sometimes for me, it is on the level of just asking a question like, hi, was that about race for you? Or am I fully misreading this? Like, because I think I, I often doubt my own assessment of um, how a situation will be received by a friend of mine who is not white. And, and I do think that sometimes asking the question is, is, is better than um, ignoring it completely or saying like, well, if it was a big deal, maybe they'll bring it up to me. Well, Vicky tweets, I have a handful of gal friends. I call them the lovelies whom I've known, traveled with, and seen at least once a week for more than 26 years. These friendships have lasted longer than either of my marriages. Lovers come and go. Good friends do not. Let me go to Pamela in San Mateo. Hi, Pamela. Hi. Um, thank you so much for bringing light to this topic. It's so important. I love how Easter Ray also highlighted this in the most recent 
season of Insecure. Yes. We just don't talk about Fred breakups, but they're just as painful, if not more. And so I, I'm, I'm actually struggling with, um, I'm 36, and there are some close besties from college that I've kind of just grown away from. And so I do want to still believe that it's possible we could rekindle that. And I guess just what suggestions do you have for if it's maybe been even just a few years of sort of estrangement, how could you how could you start? Where would you begin? Yeah. Thanks, Pamela. I mean, not just Zora and Friedman. Any thoughts for Pamela? Oh, Pamela, that is such a good question. And I think it's also such a pressing question during the pandemic. I know that I, for one, have been thinking a lot about, you know, friendships that have gone cold. I, you know, I, we are not experts at all, but the, the thing that I always come back to is that everything is about communication. And so I wonder what it would be like to just rip that bandaid and tell your friends, hey, you used to be really important in my life. I would like for that still to be the case. Do you feel the same way? And how can we do that? So much of having these conversations is showing vulnerability and Mm -hmm. waiting to see if it will be reciprocated or not. And I think that because we are just not trained to do that with friends and there's no cultural script and there is no really cultural support for it, we feel really lost and awkward doing it. But I think that it is, um, you know, it is it is important to make that first step. And whether it's reciprocated or not, I think that you learn a lot about yourself in the process. Well, John writes, I've had a friendship for over 40 years, but moved across the country and am having challenges keeping it alive. Any suggestions on how to keep friendships alive through physical distance besides talking on the phone? And of course, this is what you the two of you do, right? I mean, you are across the country (laughs) from each other. Uh, even we are kind of at a loss mm-hmm. right now because our our long-term friendship really um, relies on seeing each other in person, you know, at least a couple times a year. And um, and I think that right now this feeling of like, we don't even know when we're going to be on a plane again and when we are going to be near each other again yes. is, um, is really difficult for us in, in a new way. And we are people who are, like you say, used to living long distance. Um, I, I, I think that every friendship is different in the way that it adapts to distance as well. Um, you know, you mentioned beyond just getting on the phone. I mean, I have friendships where um, we have become old fashioned pen pals during the pandemic, <laughs> something about that, um, that lag time of like, okay, I'll take a few minutes to write this letter and then we won't really speak, but we'll kind of keep in touch in this slower paced way has really worked um, for some friendships. Other friendships, you know, we trade voice messages or um, we have maybe like a a heavier texting relationship. Um, And then, you know, I also know other people, this is not, you know, my personal thing, but um, who are, you know, still doing their regular Zoom dates with friends who they once saw in person. And that's really working for them or for that particular friend group. And um, I I would tell this listener to maybe just ask his friend who moved away to say, hey, I, I really want to maintain this friendship. I don't want us to grow apart just because we're living far. And um, and what can we do? What can we try? Do you want to try, you know, letters or a standing Zoom date or whatever it might be? Because I think that that intention in some ways matters more than the exact technology you're using or exactly mm-hmm. how it appears on the calendar. Yeah, communicating the intention and or desire. Um, Annette in Alameda join us. Hi, Annette. Hi, thanks for the call. Uh, appreciate this subject matter as well. Um, I have several friends in which I have very close relationships for over 45 years. 
and um, since high school, and I, I value friendships greatly, but there was, there's always this thing that people comment about um, family is closer than, than friendships. Well, my friendships are incredibly close, meaning I feel closer to my friends and can say things to my girlfriends more or easier than I can with my family. Um, and my family members or even close sisters. Um, I find that the communication um, is different uh, with my men friends than my women friends. I feel like men to me have an easy, they're just, I can say anything to them and they don't react offensively or take offense to it, have a better communication with it. Whereas women tend to get very, um, personal about it like it's it's an offense on them and there's so much sensitivity to it that I tend to avoid sensitive subjects with certain people because I have learned over the years that they react differently Mm -hmm. and it's like I know where this is going to go so I just won't go there and I find that there's just these boundaries that become established over the years that you know you can't go to or you just avoid because of potential problems. And I think, Aminatou So or, or Anne Freeman, have you heard this? And do you think there is sort of a gender element to this? You know, that is a really interesting conversation. I, you know, I personally like do not subscribe to a gender binary when it comes to, um, to a lot of these questions. But I think that it is true that um, you know, um, women and men have traditionally been socialized to act differently in friendship. We write in the book that we have very close friendships and big friendships with men as well as women. So, um, you know, some of this is recognizable to me and some of it is not. But I think that, um, you know, in as much as uh, gender is a difference, I think that there is also like a generational difference. I think that there are cultural differences to how people are. But, um, you know, I... I I always find these questions interesting because the more you dig, the more difference there is than just gender. Yeah. Uh, Well, Brian writes, in my late 20s, several of my friendships with men dissolved when I tried to work through things. I've been met with comments about not turning the relationship into a therapy session. Now in my 40s, if I keep things on the surface with other male friends, we can maintain a happy friendship for years. So interesting. And also... uh, I really did want to ask you what the two of you learned by doing therapy together as friends. It's cause also so interestingly, Brian is saying that that's one of the things that the friends use in terms of terminology, like don't turn this into a therapy session. Hmm. Uh, um, what do we learn in therapy? I mean, wow. I, I feel that um, it is true that, you know, not all friendships would benefit from the kind of examination that, um, that we did in therapy. Not all friendships really need it. Um, but I, I think for us, um, it was really important as a way of undoing that story from the very early days of our friendship that we are the same person. Because a lot of those misunderstandings that had popped up um, had been created when one of us did something and the other person thought, 
well, I would have never reacted that way unless I really didn't care. And therefore this person doesn't care about me and I'm gonna make my own meaning of it. Um, and it was really a space for us to vocalize the kind of meaning we had made separately out of different things in our friendship and to really realize that we react very differently to conflict. We process emotion differently. We handle, we handle like different types of challenges very differently. And, and just having a space where that could be said out loud. And so we could start to practice saying out loud, um, here's what I actually meant when I did that. Or um, this, is, this is how I received that. Is that what you meant? Is really the, the value of it. And so, you know, less so the, um, maybe the stereotypical like, uh, how do we solve all of our life's problems? It was, it was more about like really getting to these underlying emotional differences between the two of us. Mm. And um, that feels a little bit different than the, um, the listener's comment about like turning this friendship into a therapy it, session and seeking personal help, you know? And it is. I, I'm curious though, how you did know that you needed it. Oh man, <laughs> um, <laughs> things were not working. I, I think that um, we tried a bunch of different ways of connecting on our own um, that were not working. Um, one of us would make an overture and the other person would not recognize it as such. And then things would get even more estranged and awkward. And, um, and so it really just became clear that we could benefit from uh, a third party in the room with us to kind yeah. of continually force us back to the same page. And it just sounds like, I mean, not too so, there was so much in that relationship that you felt was worth this sort of big step and, and a big financial commitment and a big time commitment and everything. I, I don't know if you just want to say a few words about, about, you know, what felt really worth saving. Oh, I mean, truly, this was another one of these, like, how much time do you have? I, you know, I think that the, the two things that therapy really made me realize and um, and the reason that we are still friends today is that one, um, it is really worth it to invest in your friendships. Um, I, the reason that I wanted to be friends with Anne 11 years ago, that she, you know, that she was smart, she was fun, she, um, I like the way that she makes me think about the world. I like the way she organizes her ideas. I like the kind of, um, I like the kind of person that she is and the kind of world that she is trying to build. Those reasons are still true today. And I wouldn't know that today if I had not stuck around and if I had not invested. But I think also that there is also a more selfish reason to want to invest in your friendships. Friendship is a real mirror that you hold to, you know, that your friends hold up to you. And the level of self-knowledge and just self-discovery that you make by being a good, loyal and faithful friend and having that in return is, um, you know, I'm like, I would never know those things about myself if I had not been friends with Anne. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that that is really worth considering, you know, I, back to the point at the beginning of the show, when we said that we grew up with this expectation that friendship was supposed to be easy and breezy, that idea is really damaging, because it means that, you know, you can have people like this in your life, and on a dime, you just completely drop them. I, I think that the message that we are making is not that you should be a, a friend to everyone or that you should slog through hard relationships. If the relationship is bad or if it's hard, fair enough, like let it go. But you should at least fight for it, you know, and figure out whether it is worth saving or whether it's something to walk away from. 
Yeah. That to me, I think is, is the central question of how you want to be in a friendship. Um, you know, and I think that we really understand that in other kinds of relationships and we need to bring that same level of investment and of gravitas really to our friendships as well. Let me go to Anne in Camarillo. Hi, Anne. Hello. Hi, go right ahead. Oh, I, I have a question because I've, I have a friend uh, I've known since I was six months old and I'm 70 years old now. And I essentially stopped speaking to her uh, the day before the last election, November 7th, 2016, when she said something that just uh, astounded me about our, uh, uh, our president. And I couldn't understand how she could think that way. And I was hurt. And I've had difficulty speaking with her since that time, which is almost four years now. Mm. And I need some, uh, I really would like to reconnect. I was thinking maybe after this election, if he loses, I'll feel it'll be easier. Uh, So do you have any suggestions as to how I might reestablish that relationship? And thanks. Yeah, appreciate the question. I, I bet you might not be alone. <laughs> um, Avi so or Ann Friedman, any thoughts for Anne and Camarillo? Uh, I, I think that these questions can be so hard because what we're trying to sort out is what is a values difference or a worldview difference that is so deep you you can't really live in community with someone versus what is something that is like, look, you know, we can all be, uh, we can share values, but kind of think differently about how they're lived in the world, right? Like that line is, is something that I have definitely um, found myself navigating in a lot of my relationships, um, not just friendships. Um, and in, in this case, you know, I mean, it's hard for me to say. I, 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 um, I will say that like my experience in this kind of um, maybe like classic political divide comes more in the realm of family than in friendships. Um, but I, I will say that like navigating that question of does this person at the end of the day share, share my values and live them differently? Or are we just so far apart on, um, you know, whose humanity we value and the world we want to build that actually like the, the benefits of us being in community with each other are, are not clear. I mean, I think that, um, those are the kinds of deeper questions that are really suggested, not just like the superficial, can you have a friend of a different political party as it's often reduced to? And, and so I'm, I, I don't really have a specific piece of advice except to say that, um, you know, it's also true that um, not all friendships weather big changes in terms of uh, the world around us and in terms of your, your personal evolution. And so, um, you know, I never, we never want our advice to be taken as friendships must be saved at all costs. I think um, there are benefits to having people in your life who are different to you. Um, but that doesn't mean that every every friendship divide is worth bridging. Well, we are getting actually quite a few comments about ending friendships. Fred writes, your guests comment on the unmentionable topics that we fear can bring the whole thing down resonates with me. I recently ended a quarter century long friendship. There were ups and downs, but two things were consistent. One, my friend always exhibited abusive, abusive qualities and two, I always ignored them. This listener writes, can you comment on the phenomenon of ghosting? I experienced this not with a big friendship, but with someone I considered a dear friend. I'm a straight woman in a relationship. He's a gay married man. It was painful not 
to know why after six years he wouldn't respond to phone calls, emails, and a letter. And then just to add one more, another listener tweets, we're never taught how to break up or navigate the natural end of the relationships, intimate or casual. Friendships seem to end via ghosting. <laughs> Any thoughts on why? So sort of this phenomenon of ghosting is coming up in these two in these two um, comments from listeners. Aminatou so or? I mean, I am dying to read a book about friendships ending because I, you know, I'm like, one, I, I need the help myself. And two, I, um, I think that your listeners are all correct. It's not something that we talk about enough and it's something that we should talk about more. You know, I think that um, the, to your first listener who talks about getting out of an abusive friendship, like I, like I commend that person, like being, in any kind of intimate relationship with someone who is abusive to you is not acceptable. And, you know, and that kind of relationship should end, um, you know, and to the listeners that talk about ghosting, the, I, I have been examining a lot of my own behavior around how, you know, I have ended friendships or how friendships have been ended with me. And a thing that I really envy from romantic relationships is that when you break up with someone, you actually have to break up with them. It doesn't mean that it feels good. It's always awful, but you actually have to do it. And everybody understands that, you know, the rupture has happened and you have to move on. And, you know, and your friends know to bring you ice cream and you can, you know, like people at work know that you are heartbroken and it's fine. That is just like not true in friendship. And, um, and that's awful. I also think that, you know, back to this, the, the thing that I believe Anne said earlier, if we grew up with these notions that, um, you know, of how you could be a better friend to someone, we would also have better, um, we would have better ways of ending these friendships and not hurting people. It is very disorienting to be in someone's life and then just completely disappear from them. But I believe that people do it largely in part because um, we don't tell people that it's not okay to do that. And it does feel really risky and scary to, um, to be so invested in a friendship and not really have the words for describing the bond that you have with someone. Well, Christy is slightly different, but wants to know, I'm at a point in my life where I don't feel I even have enough time for long-term existing friendships. I don't know how to tell people I just don't have time for a new friendship. I feel so selfish. Um, so this is at a point when, you know, you're, not necessarily breaking up a long friendship, but but trying to manage the ones that you do have. I don't know if you have any thoughts for how Christy can do this. Ann Friedman. Uh, yeah, I mean, um, a couple of the experts we interviewed for the book told us that ages 30 to 50 are consistently a really low point for friendship in people's lives. Um, it's a time when, you know, caregiving responsibilities or work responsibilities really expand and um, often friendship is the thing that gets pushed off the plate. Um, I, it's interesting too, because I don't really fault individuals for feeling this way. You know, we are the way our society is structured is really um, everyone for themselves. And so the idea that friends would not be um, part of that support system when you're feeling crunched um, is something that we all of us who grew up in America have certainly experienced the messaging that, you know, your family is your family and your friends um, pop in for kind of the fun times, but are, you're not mutually supportive is really common. And, um, and so then it creates this feeling of um, it's all in competition. You know, all of these things are competing mm -hmm. for your time as opposed to these things can be mutually supportive and beneficial. And um, 
So we write about this in the book. And I think that this is a hard one because it's a long-term systemic kind of change we're talking about. I think it's very hard for one person in this country without any caregiving support and without, you know, like robust safety net support to say, snap their fingers and feel like they have enough time to devote to everything. Not, to, not even getting into issues of like, you know, what the hourly wage is and how often, how much people have to work to make ends meet, right? And, um, and I think that, you know, in the short term, short of like solving all of these big systemic problems, being able to articulate that to friends is sometimes helpful as a starting point, you know, rather than just feeling like you have to disappear on your friends saying, you know, I am really in this crunch period right now. I am fully, fully sad to not be present for this friendship in the way that I want to be. Um, but let's talk about that fact, you know, because, uh, you know, apropos of the previous question about ghosting, um, it sounds like this person really does not want to ghost their friends. You know, they want to be, um, there for them in a way that they are simply not able to. And so being able to say, I'm not disappearing on you. Here's what's happening with me. Maybe we can figure something out. Feels to me like the best short-term step. Let me go to Mary Ellen in Dunsmuir. Hi, Mary Ellen. Well, hi there. Hi, thanks for joining us. What's on your mind? Well, first of all, I think I need about a half hour with your ladies. Um, I <laughs> I'm of a certain age, which um, uh, ticks me off. But anyway, I'm up this far now. And I have had and do have uh, a number of, uh, I've got a a handful of different groups of girlfriends. um, Let's say from work, well, actually some from kindergarten, and we're still together uh, from work, from marriages and divorces and all that. So my current issue right now, and it's, it is regarding this whole um, crazy time in our lives with uh, our political um, opinions and, and whatever. And um, I'm having some issues with a couple of my friends. In fact, we're going away next, next month is that they're, they're rabid about who they hate regarding uh, our whole political situation. And, um, I refuse to get into it other than I start feeling worse and worse that who am I and who are they? Hmm. And, and we've been friends for so long. And, and I wonder, has this always just been, you know, superficial? Um, you know, it's just at some point, you know, really, I, I think it comes back to me. Who am I? How did I get involved? And what was I missing all this time? Um, and it's trying to be kind to myself, but then it, I, I start thinking about other relationships in my life. And I'm telling you, you go right down the, the rabbit hole, you know? Mary Ellen, you're raising such an interesting question, and we just have about a minute left. Uh, I mean, as you so, you know, any thoughts on what Mary Ellen is going through in this questioning of, you know, did I ever really know them almost? Oh, Mary Ellen, I just want to hug you because I <laughs> so deeply identify with that. You know, I think that the the thing that I try to tell myself is not um, what have I been missing all along, because I think that culturally um, a lot has changed and we are able to have conversations today that we were not having five years ago, 10 years ago or decades ago. Um, so I think that having a little bit of grace for yourself is important. And also the things that you cared about were probably different. I think that what I try to ask myself is, 
what are my friends doing with this new information that I am giving them, you know, because it's one thing to fight about politics or like the things that you don't like, but to say to someone, hi, when you have this opinion, this is how it makes me feel. The way that people react to that, I think tells you everything that you need to know. So I wish you a lot of luck in figuring that out. Thank you so much. Well, Aminatou So, thank you for telling us so much today. Aminatou So is a writer and cultural commentator. Really appreciate having you on. Anne Friedman is also with us, journalist and essayist, and also co-wrote with Aminatou So the book Big Friendship, How We Keep Each Other Close. Also really appreciate having you on as well. Thank you so much, both of you. Ariana Prail produced today's segment. I'm Mina Kim. Thanks to our listeners for their questions, comments, and stories. And thanks for listening. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.